Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Wednesday, January 10th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Chinese companies are using repurposed chips to get around U.S. sanctions. And the European Union is scrambling to replace Council President Charles Michel. Plus, a U.K. television drama has put the spotlight on injustice against post office workers. I mean, it's like Kafkaesque. I think you enter into this situation and then you're having to prove your innocence. You just see how you get deeper and deeper into the quicksand of it. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Chinese companies are struggling to get their hands on the chips they need to develop artificial intelligence. The U.S. has banned exports of high-performance semiconductors to the country. So these Chinese companies are now taking NVIDIA graphics cards made for computer games and repurposing them. Industry experts say this strategy is a pretty rough workaround. These gaming chips have a lot of raw computing power, but they can't do the kind of high-precision calculations that you need to train AI. As one analyst put it, it's like using a kitchen knife to create artwork. It's doable, but the results aren't great. Now, I've never made art with a kitchen knife before, but it just goes to show how desperate Chinese companies are to find workarounds to sanctions. The battle for the European Union's top job has just gotten a little bit more interesting and a little bit more high stakes. The current European Council president, Charles Michel, announced a few days ago that he was stepping down and running for parliament. Politicians are under a lot of pressure to elect a replacement. I'm joined now by the FT's Brussels bureau chief, Henry Foy. Hey, Henry. Hey, Mark. So, Henry, Michel is stepping down. What's the process here to replace him, and why is everyone in such a hurry? So typically what happens every five years, these three top jobs in Brussels come up. You have the European Council president, as you just mentioned, is Jean Michel. You have the commission president and you have the high representative. These jobs are normally negotiated. They're haggled over over months and months and months. And around the autumn, so three months or so after the summer elections, they're announced as three. What's happened now is Jean Michel is saying he wants to run in those elections. If he wins a seat, which is very, very likely, he'll have to step down to take his seat mid-July. That means if they don't have a candidate to replace him by then, under EU rules, it falls to the person who leads the country that at that point, and bear with me, holds the rotating presidency of the Council of the EU. That, through a wonderful calendar quirk, is Hungary, which means if they don't find a replacement for Charles Michel, Viktor Orban, who's actively campaigned against the way the EU works at current, would assume one of the most powerful jobs in the bloc. Everyone is desperate to avoid that. Well, okay, so if member states can't elect someone before Michel probably takes on a new job in July, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban would automatically become council president. What would that mean for the EU? So it's it's difficult to say for sure. I mean, that role would give Viktor Orban the ability to set the agenda for the European Council summits, the most senior decision-making body in the EU. He could make sure that certain items weren't on the agenda if he wanted, and basically just cause a fuss. Uh, He could make things very difficult to, to pass any kind of consensus. He could rush through certain debates or drag out others. It gives him a lot of scope if he wanted and if he had that power to really affect the way 
that that the union is run. Okay, so who might run for this position then? So, look, I mean, a health check on this, we're we're six months out. There could be lots and lots of changes between uh, now and then. But the names we're hearing, uh, Mario Draghi most prominently, former Italian prime minister, former ECB president, the guy is as close as you get really to Mr. Europe. He he famously saved the euro during the uh, eurozone sovereign debt crisis. Other names being floated, a lot of socialist prime ministers or former prime ministers because the socialists are likely to come second in the elections. So so Meta Fredriksson, who's the Prime Minister of Denmark, is being bandied about by some. Uh, Pedro Sanchez, Prime Minister of Spain. There will be other names that will come up. But at the moment, Draghi's the guy that a lot of the sensible people in Brussels are saying, he could do this job for us. And right now, we need to come up with somebody good, someone strong, someone dependable, because if we don't, and we end up squabbling, Orban's going <laughs> to step in and, and pick up the powers. This seems like there's real pressure on the EU to get this right. I mean, is this kind of a make-or-break moment then for the EU? I I don't think it's make-or-break, Mark. You know, ultimately, Viktor Orban is a member of the EU. You know, if they're too scared to let him have more power, they should probably think about whether or not they want him in the club. Nobody's getting to the point where they think Hungary should be expelled. I think people are taking this pragmatically and saying, okay, this is a reason to do this properly and to get this wrapped up nice and nice and early. Let's get a good candidate we all agree on and just make sure it's solid. Uh, so I don't think we're in a territory of like, oh, if the EU doesn't fix this, it's in, it's in major trouble. It's more that, okay, we have to take this seriously. Henry Foy is the FT's Brussels bureau chief. Thanks, Henry. Thanks a lot, Mark. A true-life TV drama about the post office has gotten audiences hooked across the UK. We are fighting a war against an enemy owned by the British government, while we're just skint little people. The show is called Mr. Bates versus the Post Office, and it tells the story of an old scandal where post office workers were wrongfully prosecuted. Now, elected officials from all parties are calling for justice. Henry Mance is the FT's chief features writer, and he joins me now to talk about the scandal. Hey, Henry, thanks for joining us. Hey, Mark, good to be here. All right, so first give me the background to the real scandal behind the TV series. So over 20 years ago, the post office, it implemented a new IT system to record all the transactions made at its branches, thousands of them around the country. And pretty soon, a small number of post offices started to see real discrepancies between what they thought their figures were and what the figures were actually coming out as. And unfortunately for them, their contract said, if there's a cash shortfall, you make up for it. And so it ended up in a real Kafkaesque situation where these postmasters were accused of fraud, of theft. They pleaded guilty because they didn't know how they could contest what this computer system was telling them. They lost their businesses, they lost their work, in many cases suffered very serious health consequences. A small number of these sub-postmasters killed themselves as a result of the stress of this situation. And it took many, many years of campaigning for the truth to come out and for the post office, which is the organization that really was responsible to admit that they had not, in fact, found fraud amongst their employees. And it's now widely called the widest miscarriage of justice in Britain in the 21st century. Now, all this is recounted in the TV series, but like you said, the scandal happened a while ago and it isn't a secret or anything. So why do you think this show has resonated with the public now? Right. I mean, it's an amazing David versus Goliath tale. But 
it was actually about a slightly arcane bit of accounting. And it didn't come to life for people. And here you have it on the screen, and it stops being a question of accounting, and it starts really being about the emotional toll, the human toll. And I think also there's a mood in Britain at the moment that things don't work, that whether we're talking about electricity companies or we're talking about sewage companies, that they're not doing the jobs on behalf of ordinary people that they were set up to do and that is expected of them. And so it's really another example of feeling that there's a system out there that is amorphous, that has very bureaucratic processes, and that if you get wrapped up in it, as some of these sub-postmasters did, you will really struggle to clear your name, and it may have a huge personal toll on you. So how are politicians responding to this public attention? Right. The Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has said that he wants to make sure that compensation for the victims of this miscarriage of justice, that that compensation comes much sooner. And he's told his Justice Secretary to work up ways of making sure that those who were criminally convicted are exonerated much more quickly. There's also an ongoing public inquiry. And now I think there's real urgency about more questions being asked of the companies involved. So you see this huge sort of head of steam build up to try and get some kind of result. Yeah, after all these years. But I'm wondering, Henry, do you think the huge public scrutiny of the way this scandal was handled will have long-term repercussions on how things are done in Britain, not just at the post office, but more broadly? I think the real problem is that if you talk to lawyers who are involved in the post office scandal and in representing the victims of that, they would say, look, the justice system in, in Britain has become so underfunded you know, the odds are weighted so much against the little guy that there could be lots of these miscarriages of justice. And what it requires is more diligent campaigning, more willingness on politicians to hear out the complaints of ordinary campaigners. So I think what we are more likely to see is a whole number of other campaigns being shone light on. I think that could be the legacy of this. Henry Mance is the FT's chief features writer. Thanks, Henry. Thank you. You can read more on all of these stories at ft.com for free when you click the links in our show notes. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business whether it's a local operation or a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.